0: Good morning, Lake City. So I am comfortable enough with my masculinity to not be ashamed to admit that I enjoy watching romantic comedies. I mean, I certainly love watching superhero and science fiction movies, but I also enjoy schmaltzy rom-coms. And so it's not surprising that I have watched the movie Sleepless in Seattle several times. One of the most famous scenes in that movie occurs early on. Tom Hanks' character Sam is on the phone with a radio call-in program, and he's talking about his deceased wife. And uh, the radio host asks him, Sam... Tell me what was so special about your wife. And Sam replies, uh, well, how long is your program? Whether it's your significant other or your kids or your favorite sports team or your favorite hobby, all of us are passionate about somebody or something where if we were asked the question, what is so special about this person or this passion, we could list reason after reason and go on and on and on. This weekend, as we continue our series, Alive in Christ, a journey through the book of Colossians, uh, last weekend, Pastor Reg kicked off this study, and he noted that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the the Colossian church to address certain heresies and false teachings. And based on the second half of chapter 1, which we're going to cover today, some of the issues the Colossians must have been wrestling with were about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because what we get to see today is the Apostle Paul speaking passionately, And listing reason after reason going on and on and on about what is so special about Jesus Christ. Paul lays out the case for the preeminence of Christ. Christ is preeminent. The word preeminent means superior or above all others. Christ is superior. He is above all other things. So let's dig into Colossians chapter 1 together. We're going to be covering verses 15 through 29, uh, but I'm just going to read verses 15 through 22 now, and then we'll cover the rest as we go on. So verse 15 says, "He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. These verses, 15 through 22, are among my favorite verses in all the Bible. I honestly can't think of another section of Scripture that is both as poetic and as majestic in its language and as densely packed in theology as these verses. So I need to say up front that we could easily, we could do a full sermon on each verse in 15 through 22. Um, Whole books have been written about the doctrinal points that we're going to cover today. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to cover each of them briefly. So first, Christ is preeminent. Jesus is preeminent because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. When we think of the word image, we think of a likeness, a picture, right? A photograph is an image of something real. Now, on first read, that might seem to imply that Jesus is something lesser than the real thing, right? But that's actually the opposite of what this verse is saying. The better translation for the word image is representation, right? Jesus, when he was here on earth, was the physical representation of the invisible God. Paul is saying that our triune God is is normally transcendent above our ability to see him physically. God is supernatural. God, nature, and his body are not the same physical reality of our bodies. So what makes Jesus preeminent is that in fact, Jesus was the physical manifestation, the representation of the supernatural infinite, transcendent God. In his human form, while on earth, Jesus was the natural form of the supernatural God that he already was, right? His human form was the bodily incarnation of his already existing divinity. A few few verses later, Paul writes this, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The full deity of God was residing in the body of Jesus Christ, Paul repeats this a chapter later. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Again, the human incarnation of Jesus was the actual physical representation of God. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Whatever God is, Christ is. The very likeness of God, the very Godhead of God, the very very deity of deity is in Christ Jesus. He's preeminent because he's God. The importance of of this doctrine on the divinity of Christ cannot be overstated. In fact, whether you believe Jesus is God or not will determine your eternal destination. It's that important. No wonder then that in this densely packed, Jesus-centered set of verses, Paul starts with the most important aspect of who Jesus is. Jesus is God. This doctrine is consistent throughout Scripture. John 1 says about Jesus, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's who Jesus is. Author of Hebrews wrote this about Jesus. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus was exactly God. Jesus himself made claims about his own divinity. In John 10, Jesus said, I and the Father were one. He doubles down on that two chapters later and says, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Our understanding of the preeminence of Christ must begin with the understanding that Jesus is God. He's one of the three persons of the triune God. Secondly, Jesus is preeminent because he holds the position of highest importance in all the universe. Position of highest importance in all the universe. Again, verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If there are any Jehovah's Witnesses here, I'm going to apologize up front in case you take offense at what I'm about to say, but I need to speak the hard truth to you. The theology that Jehovah's Witnesses hold about Jesus is utterly wrong in several fundamental ways. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses hold, don't believe that Jesus was divine, that he wasn't God, right? Well, Jesus is God. They're wrong on that. They don't believe in the Trinity at all, and they're completely wrong. Our God is a triune God. And Jehovah's Witnesses will point to several verses that they interpret just incorrectly, one of which is verse 15. They point to this verse as proof that Jesus can't be divine. Because how could he be divine if Jesus was the first one born, right? He can't be divine if he was created by God the Father. But verse 15 is not saying anything about Jesus being the first thing created by God. Because Jesus wasn't created. He is God. He was eternal. He's always existed. The Bible is clear on that. John 1, 2 states, Jesus, he was in the beginning with God. So that word firstborn in verse 15 has nothing to do with being created or born. You see, if Paul wanted to state the case that Jesus was the first created thing in the universe, he would have used a very specific Greek word. He would have have chosen the word prototistos which means the first of a created order. Paul didn't use the word prototistos. He used the word prototokos. The word prototokos refers to being firstborn in status or position. You see, the culture in Israel at that time was a culture of primogeniture. That means the firstborn son was considered special and was given special legal and cultural rights. So for instance, the firstborn son back then received twice the inheritance that everybody else received. The designation of being firstborn is a status. And so what Paul is saying here is that of everything in all of creation, all of creation, Jesus held the status of firstborn. He was special. He was most important. That's why the Bible says of Jesus, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. Because Jesus holds the position of highest importance in the universe. Third, Jesus is the creator God. Jesus is preeminent because Jesus is the creator God. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It's easy for us to read the Bible as two distinct parts, right? Now here's the God of the Old Testament and then a star appears over Bethlehem and here's Jesus in the New Testament. But no, that's not the right way to see that. Jesus is eternal. He's always been there. He's one with God. His story doesn't begin in the New Testament. His story begins in Genesis. And more than just existing at the beginning, verse 16 tells us that Jesus actively participated in the creation of the universe. This is an extraordinary revelation. It's saying that when we read in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's Jesus as part of the triune God who is doing the creating. Now, it's not possible for us to understand how a triune God fully operates. There's this sense that whatever God the Father does, then God the Son also does, and God the Spirit also does. And certainly, there are verses that indicate that all three persons of the Trinity were actively involved in the creation. But the Bible also repeatedly calls out the distinctive role of Christ in the creation process. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, But in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. The of Hebrews is telling us that God the Father worked through Jesus to create the universe. Gospel of John notes, All things were made through him, through Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. Everything in the universe made through Jesus. Even in the great scene in heaven... Described in Revelation 4, where the elders and living creatures are worshiping before the throne, worshiping Christ, this is what they exclaim. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Repeatedly, the Bible points out Jesus' special role in the creation of the universe. Even in heaven, we're going to celebrate and worship him for that. He's preeminent because he made everything. He's the creator God. Fourth and related, not only did Jesus create the universe, but it's by his power and through his power that the universe holds together even now. Verse 17, and in him all things hold together. Greek word used for hold together means to unite separate parts into one whole. Paul is noting for us that Jesus didn't just use his power to create the universe and then stepped aside and let it run away, let let it run in its own, right? No, there's the sense that were not for Jesus' ongoing power now, the universe would completely fall apart. It's Jesus that keeps all the pieces of the universe together into a working whole. I, I don't know anything about cooking. Uh, But my family and I do watch a lot of cooking shows in the Food Network, so sometimes I think I'm an expert. And one of the cooking terms I picked up is this term, binding agent. Are you guys familiar with the term, binding agent? A binding agent is an ingredient that's used in a recipe not just for taste, but primarily for its ability to hold all together the other ingredients, right? A meatloaf without eggs, for example, doesn't retain its shape or consistency as well because the egg is the binding agent. In the same way, Jesus is the binding agent for the universe. The universe needs him to hold it together. I mean, you can think about the complexity of the universe, right? If the earth is too much closer to the sun, then it's too hot to sustain life. Too much farther from the sun, then it's too cold. You can think about the exact uh, amount of gravity that's needed to hold the atmosphere to the earth so that we can breathe. We could list... So many other fascinating aspects of, our, of the physical world and physical science that have to work together exactly to sustain life. And all of them exist in perfect harmony because of the ongoing sustaining power of Jesus. The universe exists and holds together because of Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8, "...there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist." And our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Present tense. He's preeminent because he holds all things together. Next, Jesus is preeminent because he's the head of the church. He is the head of the church. Verse 18. And he's the head of the body, the church. The church is not a building. The church is not a building. The church is the global community of faithful followers of Jesus Christ throughout history. That's the church. You and I, if we say that we have a relationship with Jesus, that we believe he's God, that he died for our sins and rose again, if we believe that, then we're part of the church. We're part of his body. And Paul is saying that Jesus is preeminent because he's the head of this body. During his last keynote address before he died, Apple founder Steve Jobs said that his greatest invention was not a gadget, His greatest invention was Apple, the organization and the people. Because the company and the culture that he built there would lead to future innovations. In the same way, the enduring legacy and power of Jesus lives on in his people, the church. Two thousand years later, the church is still bearing the truth of the gospel to the unreached corners of the globe. Church is still loving its neighbors. Church is still serving others. Church is still being the hands and feet of Christ. No other organization has impacted the world over the last two millennia greater than the church of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is preeminent because he's the head of this church. He directs its steps. He provides its power. He brings it forward. The Bible says, And God put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Next Jesus is preeminent because he will hold the highest position among the resurrected. He will hold the highest position among the resurrected. Verse 18 says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Anybody know how many accounts there are in the Bible of people being resurrected? Exactly 10. Exactly 10, Jeremy. <laughs> there are 10 the son of the widow from Zarephath, the son of the Shunammite woman, the man whose body touched Lysha's bones, the son of the widow of Nain, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, Dorcas, Eutychus, Jesus himself. And then in Matthew 27, it says that a number of saints were resurrected on the day that Jesus was resurrected. Now, several of those accounts occurred in the Old Testament. So how can Jesus be called the firstborn from the dead, right? His resurrection came after six of these accounts. So how is he firstborn? So I think we can understand this phrase in two, two ways. One, if you exclude Jesus' resurrection, do you know what the other nine accounts of resurrection have in common? All of the other people in the Bible who are raised from the dead outside of Jesus eventually all die again. All experience physical death one more time. Not Jesus. Jesus conquered death forever and ever. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it was in a glorified body that would never experience death. And so when Paul notes that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, it means that Jesus was the first one in the Bible to be raised from the dead permanently. The Bible says we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again because death no longer has dominion over him. That's the great hope of all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. We too, we will one day be raised to eternal life, never to die again, ever. Because Christ has conquered death forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. second way that we understand this phrase, firstborn from the dead, is the same way that we understand the, word, the phrase firstborn that's used in verse 15, right? It's the same exact Greek word here, prototokos. So it refers to Jesus as status. Not only was Jesus the first to be resurrected permanently to eternal life, but also one day when Jesus raises all of us who believe in him to eternal life, Jesus will hold the highest position of importance among the resurrected redeemed. He holds the position of prominence, not just in this life, but also in the life to come. He will hold the position of highest position uh, among the resurrected. Seventh, Jesus reconciled creation to God through the gospel. He is preeminent because he reconciled us to God. Verses 20 through 22. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Last week, Pastor Reg did an excellent job connecting the gospel to the book of Colossians. And these verses speak again about the the need for the gospel. Because understanding the gospel, it was important not just to the Colossian church, it's important to us today. This is the gospel again. That a holy, sovereign God created mankind in his image to be in perfect, loving relationship with him. But that our sin broke that relationship. And as a consequence of that sin, we've earned eternal death. And separation from the God who loves us. But God out of a heart of great love sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sin. And then in great power Christ rose from the dead and conquered death. And for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. We're adopted into his eternal family. And restored to perfect loving relationship forever and ever. That's the gospel. If none of the previous reasons proved why Christ is preeminent. The reconciling work of the gospel ought to. Paul uses the term alienated to describe our broken state because of sin. He says this even more clearly in in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul wrote this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope without God in the world. That's what our sin did to the perfect relationship that God had in store for us. Right? Separated us from him. Removed us removed from us the covenants of God's promise to his people and left us hopeless. But the gospel of Christ speaks to the work done by God through Jesus to restore us. Verse 20 says, we have peace with God only because of the blood of the cross. Verse 22 says, the reconciliation happens only because of his death. That's why Paul in verse 23 says the phrase, the hope of the gospel. Because we have hope again. We were once alienated, but now we're restored, reconciled. We were once separated from his promises, but now we've made peace with him. Once hopeless, now hope. Christ is preeminent because of what he accomplished for us through the gospel. The Bible says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's preeminent because he's the cornerstone and he's the gospel. Lastly, Jesus is preeminent because he reconciled Gentiles into the community of God's people. He reconciled Gentiles into the community of God's people. Verses 25 through 27. Paul refers to the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now this last point is perhaps not as earth-shattering to us today as it was back then, right? We're all Gentiles. We're the beneficiaries of the work of Christ. But back then, it was a huge point of contention among Jewish converts. Now culturally, Jewish people had always believed that the Yahweh God of the Old Testament, the one true God, was the God of and for the Jews, and so they assume that Jesus' atoning death on the cross and his resurrection was also for Jews only. It's but that's why so many of the New Testament letters address this topic of welcoming Gentiles into the community of God's people. Because it was so culturally groundbreaking. As Pastor Tim Keller noted, the early Christians mixed people from different races and classes in ways that seemed scandalous to those around him. It was groundbreaking. The inclusion of Gentiles in God's redemption plan is important because it speaks to both God's heart and God's power. Now, the inclusion of Gentiles reveals God's heart in this way, that God's heart is for all people, all nations, all races. When the Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, it means everyone. God's plan is not a plan of salvation for a narrow slice of the world, but for the whole world. That's why Psalm 86 declares all the nations you have made, shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, all the nations. As it relates to God's power, diversity glorifies God in a way that uniformity does not. Because a God whose only followers come from one ethnic group or race, well, that's a God whose power isn't strong enough to cross something as shallow as skin color or culture. Right? A God whose only followers come from one nation That's a God whose power can't cross geography. It's an almighty God whose kingdom spans all countries, all history, all countries, all people, all cultures. The early church's ability to connect Jew to Gentile into community speaks to the profound power of Christ and the profound power of the gospel. Because Christ's love and Christ's power were able to overcome human difference and bring people together into loving unity. The Bible says here there's not Greek and Jew. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all. Christ is all and, all and in all. He is all. And he is preeminent. That is a lot to digest. I know. So the natural question for us today is. How ought we to respond to belief in the preeminence of Christ? I think this passage points us to two things. First, a proper response to the preeminence of Christ is serving in ministry. It's serving in ministry. In this short passage, Paul mentions his work three times. Okay? At the end of, at the end of verse 23, after talking about the gospel, he says of the gospel, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You could rephrase that to say, of which I, Paul, became, a, became someone who serves in ministry. In verse 25, Paul says again, after talking about the, the, the message of salvation to the Gentiles, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. He uses the word stewardship. Now stewardship is carrying out your responsibilities. And what Paul is saying is that the great news of the gospel comes with it certain responsibilities from God. the Responsibilities to share it with others To grow them in a relationship with Christ. There is is responsibility that comes with understanding the good news. That's why in the very last verse, verse 29, it speaks to how seriously Paul sees his responsibility. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Toil, right? If you've read the book of Acts, you know how difficult Paul's ministry was. The many persecutions he suffered, the hardships he faced. And yet in verse 24 he says, He rejoiced in his sufferings. Why would he rejoice in his sufferings? Because if we truly understand all these great truths about Jesus, then we understand that these truths need to be shared to impact the world. The people of God respond to the truths about God by serving God. That's why the Bible says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We are good stewards of God's grace when we serve others. Secondly, in addition to serving in ministry, a proper response to the preeminence of Christ is suffering well. Is suffering well. Verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now this is a tricky verse to get your mind around. Especially this phrase, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Because Jesus was perfect, so his works couldn't have lacked anything. Jesus' atoning death on the cross, also perfect. Paul is not implying that Christ's suffering somehow was lacking in any way, because it wasn't. Now, what he's saying is that it's one thing to verbally share to to people that Christ willingly suffered for them out of love. And it's altogether another thing to suffer so they can visually see that in person. No one really wants to suffer. But throughout history, the church made its greatest growth and impact during times it faced persecution. When the early church was being martyred in Rome, for example, the church exploded in growth. Why? Because people witnessed the suffering of those being persecuted, saw them suffering well, And then recognize that only a real God could be behind that kind of response. It is why scripture repeatedly calls for the people of God to suffer well. It's how we reflect Christ's suffering. The Bible says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. The Bible says, count it all joy, my brothers, joy, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It is our suffering, when we suffer well, that we align ourselves with Christ's suffering and the people can see it. The Bible says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Listen, beloved. It is through our suffering well that the world will see the suffering of Christ played out and lived out for their sake. John Piper put it this way. He explained this verse. God is calling us in this text to live for the sake of the gospel and to do that through suffering. Christ chose suffering. It didn't just happen to him. He chose it as the way to create and perfect the church. And now he calls us to choose suffering. That is, he calls us to take up our cross and follow him on the Calvary Road and deny ourselves and make sacrifices for the sake of presenting his suffering to the world and ministering to the church. When we suffer then Jesus' suffering is reflected in our suffering. The Bible puts it this way. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, not driven to despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. If Christ is preeminent, and he is, then we, his people, will suffer well for the sake of the gospel. So, where do we go from here? A few next steps. First, I will live my life to reflect my belief in Christ's preeminence. I will live it. It's easy to say that Christ is our most important priority, and it's altogether something different to live in such a way that there's no doubt. We need to examine our lives and we need to pray. Ask God to show you how you can make Him your highest priority. Maybe it's spending more time reading the Word, maybe it's more time in prayer. Maybe it's giving up a personal addiction. Maybe it's forgiving someone. Maybe it's asking for forgiveness. Maybe it's giving more faithfully or more generously. Maybe it's taking your responsibilities as a spouse or a parent more seriously. Maybe it's serving. Commit to seeking the Lord's direction and how to live like you believe. Secondly, recognition of Christ's preeminence leads to ministry. So I will serve in ministry. Our response to Christ's preeminence ought to be putting our faith into action. One of the many things I love about Lake City is the number of ways that you can minister to other people. There's so many ministry opportunities. You can lead or co-lead a small group. You can volunteer in our children's ministry or middle school or high school ministries. By the way, a big thank you to all the men and women who stepped up this weekend to serve in childcare while uh, the women were away at retreat. Thank you for stepping up. Other volunteer opportunities are Awana and the food bank can always use volunteers every week. Maybe the Lord is calling you to full-time ministry in the missions field. On the 19th of the month, uh, if you're new to Lake City, um, on the 19th of this month there is a one-on-one class where you can learn not only about what we believe, but also about some of the ministry opportunities here. There's so many ways to serve. Mother Teresa once said in an interview, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus, I must feed him. This is sick Jesus. This one has leprosy or gangrene. I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. I serve because I love Jesus. If we love him, we serve him. Thirdly, I will suffer well. Paul's recognition of the preeminence of Christ led him to view all the persecutions that he suffered as something to rejoice over. In the same way, no matter what trial you are currently going through, Overwhelming schoolwork. Financial hardship. Medical issues. Difficult marriage. Deep grief. Whatever you're suffering. Whatever you're currently going through. Align your suffering with Christ's suffering. Rejoice in your trial. Consider it all joy. Recognizing that God will use it for your benefit and for his glory. The Bible says for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Lastly. If you're not a Christian, the most important next step is this, and it's for you. I will believe in the preeminence of Christ. I will believe in the preeminence of Christ. Many of you may have already read the recent Sports Illustrated story on Jake Locker. If you haven't, it's a great article. You should read it. But let me summarize it for you. Jake Locker grew up in Ferndale, Washington. He was a successful high school quarterback. His skills eventually led to bringing him to the University of Washington where Husky fans anointed him the savior of a program that had seen better days. But the enormous pressure from his fans and his friends and his family and his own expectations of himself, it eventually drove him to drinking and partying. And all of that was just empty pleasures to numb the stress. After his senior year, he was drafted by the Tennessee Titans. And despite having the opportunity to play professional football for a living, his life still didn't provide him the peace and the joy that he deeply, deeply craved. On that Titans team was former Seahawk and devout Christian Matt Hasselbeck, who understood both the pleasures of being a pro football pleasure uh, pressures of being a pro football player and the pressures of living a life without a higher power. So Hasselbeck chose to mentor Locker in more than just football. And the Sports Illustrated article wrote this: With a nudge from his mentor. Locker started to explore his relationship with Jesus. Hasselbeck could sense Locker's angst over his hero status and he told the rookie that trusting in Jesus could help him cope. Locker still drank at that point, but alcohol wasn't his problem. It was a symptom of his problem. You see, Jake's problem was that in all of these competing pressures and priorities in his life, what he needed to find was the preeminent priority to focus on. I'll let Jake Locker tell the rest of the story.
1: My wife was pregnant. We were gonna have our first child, um, and from that point, it was like uh, I felt like I needed to be committed, fully committed to something, and not pretend. I was uh, saying I was living one life, and I was you know, I was doing all these things, and it hit me, and I was like, "That's me. That's who I am. That's what I'm doing." And uh, it was keeping me from the relationship that I was looking for um, with Christ, and I never could find because of that reason. talking to Matt and saying we want to do the baptism was the big step for me to make a, a public commitment in front of these people especially um, my teammates that were there that that I spent time with on and off the field to say look I'm I'm gonna be different my name is Jake Locker um, I'm here to get baptized today to uh, profess my walk as a man with Jesus Christ If I never spend another day in the NFL, uh, God is still king, God still reigns, and uh, my life will be complete.
0: If I never spend another day in the NFL, God is still king, God still reigns, and my life will be complete. God is still king, God does still reign, and your life can be complete, friend. Like Jake Locker, throughout our lives, we all chase something. We chase our careers We chase our relationships. We chase worldly pleasures. We chase so many things. And we allow them to become priorities that cannot bring us what our souls deeply crave. Because only Christ can bring hope. Only Christ can bring peace. Only Christ can bring meaning. Only Christ can bring life. Only Christ can make us complete. Christ alone. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Nothing else. Friend, let your search end today. Let it end today by letting Christ be preeminent. Let Christ be preeminent. Let Christ be preeminent. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you that you are preeminent. You are preeminent above all other things. You are superior. Lord, 10,000 years and eternity in heaven will not be long enough to praise you for all that you are and all that you have done. Lord, give us the the faith now today to live like we understand what being preeminent means for us. Lord, as we come now to the Lord's table, may we partake of communion in deep worship of who you are. It is your work through the gospel that has reconciled us and has restored us into right relationship with you. And so we lift up our time now in the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen.